Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is Monday morning. No, it's not. Do you remember if it was Monday morning and you would get an awful lot of people saying, What's going to happen to Liz Truss? Is she going to keep her job? Is she going to be kicked out? Is the Tory party going to go, no, she didn't work, let's get another leader? We wake up this morning, right? And all of the things that happened last week seem to have disappeared. There's no headline saying that the Tory party are in desperation. There's no suggestion that the pound is crashing against the dollar. There's nobody saying, actually, the bond market is collapsing. There's nobody saying... Maybe we should find another leader. There's nobody saying Liz Truss is hopeless. U-turn or face election wipeout is what Truss is warned, apparently, uh, on the front page of the Times. But what does that mean? We've got all sorts of headlines which say, basically, Liz Truss has kind of shored up the doubters. She's managed to convince people that she's in there, at least for the short haul, if not for the long haul. There is nobody you can find this morning who doesn't think <clears throat> that uh, Liz Truss is going to be in charge of this country for the foreseeable future. And I think that's about right. Rebel MPs have been urged to fall in line behind Liz Truss. And that's where we are. So all of the people from last week, if you remember, all of the people licking their lips, the Labour Party lick spittle, saying, that's it, it's all over for the Tories, they're finished. I kept saying to them, hang on a minute, there's no election, there's no leadership crisis, there's no reason why Liz Truss can't carry on And once again, I'm afraid I was proved correct. Right? So, what are we going to do now? Are we going to rally behind Liz Truss? Are we going to give her a proper chance? Are we going to say to her, you get on with what you said you were going to do and let's see where we are in a couple of months' time? I think basically that is where this situation now rests. So, so let's stop attacking Liz Truss. Let's stop having to go at her. Let's stop going... The Tory party is no more. It has ceased to be. It is an ex-political party. Let's forget about all of that. And let us instead stand looking forward to where we can go in the next two to three months. Okay? 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk about a lot of other things this morning as well, of course, because uh, nurses are apparently going on strike. I'm going to say this once only. So if you're standing at the back, pay attention. Nurses should be banned from going on strike. Anyone who works for the NHS should be banned from going on strike. If you are serious about caring for the community, if you are serious about looking after people, if you are serious about going into the medical business because you want to help people, what the hell are you thinking about going on strike for? 
And can we also get away from this idea that the government is to blame for everything the NHS does badly? Because they're not. The people who are to blame are the bozos who run the NHS, who are useless, incompetent and completely and utterly incapable of running a brewery. Never mind a party in a brewery, if you know what I mean. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk to Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor. She was up at the conference. I saw her last night. We worked on the talk together. She said in the room itself, in the uh, in the conference um, auditorium, actually, the feeling about Liz Truss was a lot better than it even looked. So we'll get her view on where we are, where we're going, and what happens next for Liz Truss. 0344 499 1000. I think what we can say is that basically... She's weathered the storm. And if she's weathered the storm, she must be a more important and stronger politician than we thought. It's that simple. We've got the Thursday Club coming up, of course, as well. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, all sorts of other things. Howard Cox joins us. Reem Ibrahim is going to be here. Charles-Henri Galois is also here, going to talk about energy. LaDonna Harvey from the US of A2. It's all happening. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Oh, by the way, also, apparently Manchester is awful. The food is manky, according to the wife of a top footballer from Manchester City. We'll get into that in a little while. Uh, So if you live in Manchester and you know where there's a good restaurant, you might want to get in touch because we can tell um, Monsieur Gundawan's wife where to go for for dinner because she's very disappointed. There's no Italian restaurant worth a fag end. Let's talk to Isabel Oakshot about where the Tories are, where they go from here, what happens next, because they appear to be in a better place this morning than they were yesterday morning. Isabella, very good morning to you. Good morning. Um, Mike, before we begin, I have to ask you whether you've had any offers of any dates following the advert (laughs) that went out on talk last night. Listen, far be it from me to give away any of my personal details, but I get offers of dates all the time. Um, (laughs) I didn't have any on the way in today, but uh, but I'm hoping for some on the way out. We shall see. But uh, yeah, well, we should we should tell the uh, the viewers and the listeners that that, that disgracefully I was stunted up as the bloke who uh, put a billboard up on the on the motorway looking for because he'd never been out with anyone and he thought he thought it would be a good idea and it worked for him as well apparently he looks a bit of a sap it has to be said but there we are um now listen you might have learned from what i said this morning that i was somewhat persuaded by you that actually um liz truss is now um doing much better than we thought she would uh doing much better than she was yesterday morning and in fact you said to me last night the uh the atmosphere in the auditorium uh, yesterday was an awful lot better than it looks on tv So the truth is, it started out being a very tense atmosphere. And I think that there were a lot of concerns that the hall might be half empty, Mm. not least because uh, people had such a struggle to get back from Manchester. The Tory slogan, getting Britain moving, couldn't have been more ironic since (laughs) the delegates could hardly get up there in the first place. And then they had to lay on a whole series of school buses to get people back to London. Um, but actually, the turnout was was pretty good. Um, and although the atmosphere at the beginning of the speech was was anxious, I would say, I yes. think there was a real concern amongst delegates that she might seriously make matters worse, that she might cock this up. She's a bad presenter um, and that this might have been an utterly painful and excruciating experience. Uh, and it started falteringly. Um, and then there was an interruption by some uh, Greenpeace types, um, sandal-wearing, I don't know, raggy people that yeah. seem to want to stick themselves to roads. Um, <laughs> and, and that roused everybody. 
Um, and there were real cheers, uh, not for the uh, demonstrators, but for the Prime Minister at that point. Yeah. And you saw her suddenly shift in confidence. Um, and actually, the content of the speech, I thought, was very good. Um, there weren't policy announcements in there, and there were a few kind of slightly fly uh, promises. I felt particularly sorry for Therese Coffey as, um, as, as a Prime Minister rattled off a whole list of things that Miss Coffey has got to resolve uh, in the next two months, yeah. two years, um, including eliminating the uh, COVID backlog. Um, but in terms of making a defence of why she's doing what she's doing and the tax-cutting agenda that I firmly believe is the right thing for this country, I think she set out mm. a pretty strong case. And I saw delegates leaving, looking very relieved, actually, and uh, with a bit of a spring in their step. Yeah, I think so, because I think it says an awful lot as well about the sort of febrile atmosphere created by an awful lot of our colleagues in the media uh, and also those on the Labour Party side of the argument who were more or less saying that the, the Tory party was dead and buried, it was going nowhere, it was more or less finished as a political force, and basically, you know, she would have to leave uh, uh, office almost immediately. And I was saying yesterday, um, you know, well, there's no mechanism for that. She doesn't have to have an election. Even if she is the most unpopular person on the planet, she can stay in, court, in, in place for, for a couple of years. But I, I find, I'm, I'm finding it quite objectionable that so many people uh, will pile on the Tories and make out that they are the worst kind of human beings, you know, personified by that nurse who said that you shouldn't resuscitate a Tory, yeah. personified by the people on Twitter who call everybody who's a Tory, you know, evil, horrible, yeah. nasty, ghastly, the nasty party, all of that. It's got to stop, hasn't it? Because it's absolutely wrong. But also, they get it wrong as well. Well, it's not helped by some of the Tories themselves doing this. So we've got Nadine Dorries. You know, you might have been missing her a little bit since Boris Johnson not left. Not really. Up, <laughs> she's, up, she's popped to say that the Tories are being nasty and unkind and goodness knows what else. I mean, I think that people are fed up with this remorseless negativity. Mm. Um, you know, the kind of... Uh, the suggestion that within a few weeks of a new prime minister taking over that they should be swapped out for someone else mm. is utterly ridiculous. It's not going to happen. Um, and I think there are elements in the media that are seriously talking our country down in a way that has a material effect on people's lives. So if you're continually saying that Britain's going to the dogs and it's all a disaster and the prime minister is crashing the markets mm. and so on. I think it has not only an effect on people's morale, but is actually not making Britain look like a good place to invest in. And a lot of this hysteria is not actually translating into any, um, it's not actually based on serious data. I mean, I'm not denying that there was a serious market wobble, but the indices already looking a bit better. Um, and I think that it's it may be that the Prime Minister and her Chancellor have to begin pushing back a bit, Trump style, and actually, you know, being a bit more robust in their reaction to some of this endless yeah. negativity. But even descriptions of the market wobbling are, are not correct because, you know, I know people in the business of, uh, of, of money markets and they were all absolutely rubbing their hands together and having a great time making bucket loads of money. So it wasn't as though they were panicking. It wasn't as though they were wobbling. They were just seeing it as an opportunity and they'll do it all the time. Any chance they get to make money, whether the pound is going up or down, that's what they do. It's what they do for a living. 
And I think it is also really important to remember the international context of this and that much of the rest of Europe is in equally dire straits. Now, I don't think the countries in the, our country is in good shape. Mm. And I'm sure you might want to come on to the whole nurses thing in we a minute. Will. Um, but, you know, you've got inflation in the Netherlands, I think, running at about 17 percent. You know, we are not the sick man of Europe mm. on every level at this point. There are global forces. I don't think that should be an excuse for the government not to bother trying to fix things or make things better. Um, but we are not uniquely failing uh, at this point. There are pretty big headwinds. Yeah, absolutely right. And you're right. We're going to talk about the nurses' strike, which is coming up, because there are serious sort of challenges that Liz Truss is going to face. We've got the rail strike going on. There's another one coming up on Saturday. Uh, people were affected yesterday by a rail strike. Uh, we've got the nurses possibly threatening to strike. We've got university lecturers threatening to strike. We've got barristers on strike. I think they've, they've finally got a settlement. But, you know, the, the list goes on and on and on. And also, I want to talk to you about the migrant issue with Suella uh, Braverman yes, as well. Please. because I'd love to get because you were out in Italy recently uh, looking at the, what's happened there in their elections and what's happening in Sweden and, and the fact that, you know, right wing parties, because of migration, because of the problems in Western Europe, you know, people are reacting to that. And I think the Labour Party needs to be very careful because if they do, are not careful, the, the, the Conservative Party, which they say is now extreme, is a ludicrous poll in YouGov where something like 43 percent of people who were, que- were questioned about it said they believe the Conservative Party is extreme. You know, it's about extreme uh, liberalism. I think more than it is about anything else. But stay where you are, Isabel. Uh, we talked to Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV is international editor. We're going to get into the uh, the nurses' possible strike coming up. We're going to get into the migrant crisis as well. This is Talk TV. We are the place to be. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Isabel Oakshot. Isabel, let's talk about the migrant crisis because Suella Braverman got up the day before yesterday, uh, made an awful lot of uh, good noises, I think, for the Tory party faithful, said that she wanted to do loads of things, said she couldn't do them now. Um, and meanwhile, uh, we get more and more and more people. It's another lovely day today. Blue sky, no clouds. Probably another thousand people will cross today. Um, there's a real disconnect, isn't there, between those of us who believe that the human traffickers must be stopped. Those of us who believe that, you know, loads and loads of Albanians coming here is not a good thing. They're not running away from war. And those on the left who think that we're all racists and we should shut up and we should stop trying to be cruel. Have you seen, Mike, the new um, video from the Refugee Council? I mean, yes. there are so many things to make one's blood boil. Yeah. But just for the, for the sake of our viewers and listeners that haven't seen this video, let me describe how a succession of lovey A-list Hollywood types bleat about how um, people who are coming over fleeing war in wheelchairs, I'm not making this up, yeah. fleeing in wheelchairs should not be criminalised. Now, let me be clear that this succession of actors who appear in the video are British actors, yeah. and this is a British thing. So they are clearly framing this uh, as to say that it is wrong to criminalise these poor people who are coming over in their boats, uh, heavily pregnant, old ladies, disabled people. I would love to get those lovies down on the beaches in Dungeness to actually see who really is coming off the boat. Yeah. Because, of course, none of us here uh, want to criminalise heavily pregnant women fleeing from bombs and bullets, nor do we want to criminalise disabled people fleeing from bombs and bullets. But the reality is, 
um, that most or at least a very significant number of those coming over in the in the boats are economic migrants. Mm. They're not fleeing war zones. And even if they were, there were plenty of other places they could have stopped off en route. And so they are actually uh, committing crimes in, in using a route that they know to be illegal. Uh, and they may be up to a great deal worse. Yeah. Uh, I am heartily sick, and I'm sure that many people um, listening and watching this are sick of hearing the Tories telling us what they're going to do, and none of it ever happening. Yeah, it is incredible. I mean, and let's face it, anything that involves Emma Thompson, which the Refugee Council oh, video does, wearing a you know, hypocrite-in-chief. You know, um, I preferred her in um, in Nanny McPhee, to be honest. Uh, I don't like her doing these real-life sort of uh, cameos where she pretends to be a bleeding-heart liberal, flying in at last minute, you know, from Los Angeles first class because she wants to save the planet. I mean, you know, just get lost. Thanks very much indeed. But you're absolutely right. But again, it's this whole kind of hate fest, as I said, as I mentioned before, with these people who stand outside Tory party conference spitting and sort of shouting at anybody who's going in because we are supposedly, as the Tory party, you know the cruel people and you know anybody who doesn't believe in saving the world and letting everybody in no matter who they are um is some kind of maniac and it's ridiculous it's got to stop hasn't it there's nothing good and kind about encouraging a never-ending stream of people to risk their own lives in these perilous waters playing into the hands and feathering the nests of criminal gangs and in so doing, adding to a weight of migration that quite simply the public services mm. in this country cannot manage. Now, I'm sure we'll get on to the nurses, or you will later in the programme, but when people are wondering why doctors and nurses and teachers and uh, so many other public sector workers are so stretched and overworked, it's partly because there is a massive increase in demand on those services, and part of that mm. is a sheer numbers thing. Of course. It, quite literally, the population is continuing to grow, and so far from falling since Brexit, we're actually bringing more people in. Mm. I'm all in favour of bringing in the brightest and the best. I don't care what nationalities they are. This isn't a no. race. Uh, and also, isn't it interesting that, you know, um, they talk about... Um, you know, exporting racism and sending brown people to Rwanda. You know, the large, the large bulk of the people coming now on these boats are Albanian, who the last time I checked are not brown or black. Absolutely ridiculous. Projecting racism onto an issue that has nothing to do with racism. Right. Nothing whatsoever. This is about whether or not we have unlimited capacity in this country to take anyone who wants to come here. Now it would be a lovely, luxurious position to be able to welcome anyone, although I'd rather not have Albanians if they have a criminal background or criminal intent. Mm. But we, we as a country do not have that infrastructure. So it's about how we manage the numbers in a realistic way. And the Tories have had 12 years to sort this out. Yes. And I remember David Cameron in opposition in the run-up to 2010 saying that he wanted to bring net migration below 100,000 
That was more than 12 years yeah. ago. And where are we now? Yeah, not in a very good place at all. And as I mentioned to you, I mean, you were out in Italy recently uh, following the election of Giorgio Maloney uh, as the new prime minister, a, a bit of a lurch to the right. Um, similar things have happened uh, happening in Sweden. You know, Western Europe has had enough. We're sick to the back teeth of this open door policy introduced by Angela Merkel, which has basically ruined Europe. Yes, and, and, you know, the election of Giorgia Maloney is directly linked to frustration in parts of Italy with what they see as uncontrolled uh, migration, mainly coming from North Africa. It's kind of a different um, situation mm. to what we're in. Um, but, you know, you let this continue at your peril as politicians. And I just think the Tories have run out of road on this. Uh, but what's uh, very dis- dis- dispiriting is that I have no faith whatsoever that Labour are somehow going to sort it out. It's not like the, if the next administration is a Keir Starmer administration, uh, perish the thought that this is going to get better. I should think it will get mm. massively worse. And I think there's, you know, there are many fronts on which the Conservatives deserve to lose the next election. And if there are still boats coming over the channel full of illegal migrants, uh, when we go to the polls, then, you know, on their shoulders be it. Well, exactly. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has been tweeting recently about how uh, we must have not only uh, open door policy for everybody who wants to arrive on our shores. He says we need a humane immigration system grounded in compassion, dignity and respect. No, we don't. We need an, an immigration system that has a bloody door uh, which you have to open if you want the person who's standing on the other side of it to come in. And if you don't want them to come in, uh, they don't come in. Simple. Absolutely. Well, as um, our friend um, talk presenter Richard Ty says, zero tolerance, net zero illegal migration. I think everyone's absolutely sick to the back teeth of this issue. Mm. It is about numbers, not nationalities. Get a grip. Yeah, absolutely. Final question for you is about the nurses, uh, potential nurses strike coming up. You know, my belief is that if you want to work in the NHS, you should not be allowed to go on strike. It's a national health service. It is not something which is at your beck and call. And if you don't like the money, go and do something else. Well, I mean, I would extend that to the rail workers, honestly. I think this has just become completely ridiculous, the waves of strike. I don't think people, people of course, have a right to withdraw their labour, but in my opinion, they don't then have a right to expect a job at the end of it. So if you want to withdraw your labour, good luck to you. Go and get a job somewhere else. I do think nurses are underpaid, but their demand is unrealistic. They're asking for uh, something like 17% rise. Uh, and look, we're just not in an environment where that's possible. And so, again, the NHS is to blame here because they're paying agencies much, much more money for nurses to cover the shortfall, which means that inevitably people who sometimes work as nurses will go to those private agencies because they get paid more money for doing the same job. As ever, the system is broken. As ever it is. Um, and look, we could be here all day if we <laughs> wanted to have a discussion about everything that is wrong with the NHS, something that could be so magnificent and is endlessly crippled by bad management. Not bad people, but bad management. Yeah, absolutely right. Good to talk to you as well. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakshock, Talk TV's international editor. Uh, we were on the talk together last night. If you haven't seen that, uh, you can go and watch it again on the app or watch it again on YouTube. Uh, lots more for us to do. Uh, we've got loads to talk about, including why Manchester uh, is basically a place with no decent restaurants. What's going on? Uh, this is Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV. Uh, how about this from Paul? He says, so, nurses want to strike. The same nurses who lapped up the adulation and hero-worshipping throughout a flu pandemic called COVID. No real surprise there. Why don't they go on strike against what they know to be the complete chaos within their organisation in terms of diversity versus operations for patients? They are part of the problem. Why don't we just give the whole country £10,000 each, then sit back and watch us totally destroy the country? Let's give illegal migrants the money also. They get everything else for free. I am beginning to despise this country and our so-called public services police health education are total shambles and these are the kind of views that an awful lot of people in this country have and this is the only place where you are allowed to even say that stuff right because i know as well as anybody how frustrated people are in the real world but you look at labor party conference not a word was mentioned about the illegal migrants coming to this country not a word was said about what we would do with you know 60,000 more people coming in compared to just 40,000 last year and sort of an extra million people coming over the course of say the last 10 years uh, into this country illegally it's unbelievable but this is the place to say what you really feel. And we're going to talk about the nurses' strike coming up a little bit later on. My belief is, is that if you are a nurse, if you are an emergency services worker, you should not be allowed to go on strike because people have had enough. They're sick to death of it. You can't get a hospital appointment. If you do get one, there's a pretty good chance it's going to get cancelled before you do it. And it's just not good enough, I'm afraid. Coming up, though, uh, we're going to talk to Jasmine Bertels because she is, of course, a personal finance expert from Money Magpie. Uh, because the big question on everybody's lips is what's going to happen to my mortgage? Because regardless of how the pound has settled down once again and it's relatively stable against the dollar, regardless of how the bond market has now settled down. And in fact, the Bank of England has now stopped buying back bonds because they don't need to anymore. The problem will persist in the housing market because of rising interest rates. Let's find out from Jasmine precisely what is going on. Jasmine, a very good morning to you. Hello there, hi. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, you're very busy these days, I know, so thank you for, yes. for finding the time to talk to us. Um, Two-year fixed rate mortgage is now over 6%. I heard this story this morning and was very underwhelmed by it because I come from a place where, you know, fixed rate mortgages used to be at 10%. Fixed rate mm-hmm. mortgages used to be at 12%. Um, you yeah. know, I've bought houses that, that made money. I've bought houses that lost money. So, you know, I'm not one of those people who goes... As soon as you buy property, you're in uh, like Flynn because you're going to make a fortune. What's going to happen, do you think, over the next few months for people? Well, this is the question. What is going to happen? And frankly, nobody really knows. And this is why it's difficult for mortgage advisors. I actually spoke to a mortgage advisor from London and Country yesterday about it. And he said the same as me, which Mm. is we just don't know. There is so much uncertainty. So... You know, when people, if if anybody is thinking, right, should I fix now or should I wait a bit and see if things calm down? Frankly, yes to both, yeah. you know. Um, so th- there is a likelihood that interest rates are going to keep going up. That is the likelihood. However, you know, will they go up as much as we thought they might last week? As you say, uh, the panic has has reduced. The panic could con- reduce even more. Or something could happen that makes the Bank of England go, oh, we're going to have to put interest rates up by 1%, not half a percent. So it looks like interest rates are going to go up. But as you know, if something terrible happens with the economy, suddenly everything tanks. Mm. 
they're going to then bring interest rates down at some point. And, you know, this is part, frankly, part of the point of putting interest rates up, I think, which is that it gives them a bit of wiggle room later on in case everything goes pear-shaped and they can go, oh, well, we'll bring it down by half a percent, by one percent, whatever. I mean, a lot of people think the Bank of England is slightly to blame here because they didn't bring the interest rates up. Uh, more slowly from where they were because they were very, very low for a very long time. And and like a whole generation of people now is used to having hardly any interest rates at all. And so suddenly when you do bring them up, everybody goes, oh, my God. But the point about bringing interest rates up is to supposedly stop inflation, isn't it? That's the idea. Yes, I think you're being very kind there to the Bank of England. Yes, more than (laughs) slightly. (laughs) Uncharacteristically. (laughs) Um, I I personally put put most of the blame uh, at their door and at the door of central bankers across the world. We have had insane um, money printing since 2008, frankly. We had money printing then. Most of that money went into bankers' pockets Mm. and it went to the housing market. And it is very much... Um, a much part of the reason why interest rate, why um, the price of houses has gone up. It's not just uh, supply and demand. It's the insane amount of money that's been pumped mm. into the system. Come 2020, I mean, it was on steroids. They were pr- printing money on steroids. And so we now have, as you say, in- r- ridiculous inflation. Um, and I do agree, yes, they probably should have put interest rates up earlier as well. Um, so the situation we now have is a situation of stagflation where you have a stagnant economy and rampant inflation and you know as you know that you you have to use two different opposing uh, operations to to deal with those two with inflation you need to increase interest rates reduce the flow of money with stagnation and a recession you need to increase the flow of mm. money and it does feel at the moment like the government and the Bank of England are trying to do both at the same time. Bank of England is trying to increase interest rates to reduce the flow of money. Government is trying to put more money in our pockets with you know, cutting taxes. So um, <laughs> the two could cancel each mm. other out. It's, yeah, um, it was described to me recently by an economist as having uh, somebody driving a car with one foot on the accelerator and the other foot on the brake and just exactly. putting them both flat to the floor. And what happens? Basically, the wheels just spin, you know. Yes, quite. It is weird. Yeah. I mean, personally, I was I was actually quite happy with the mini budget because, you know, given the given the choice, and we do have mm. a choice, stag, deal with stagnation or deal with inflation. I personally wanted to deal with stagnation. I wanted to go for growth because mm. I personally think that a stalling economy is worse than rampant inflation, yeah. although rampant inflation is a nightmare. I mean, you look at countries around the world, uh, Turkey has 80% inflation, 8-0. Argentina, which has had inflation for, I don't know, um, decades, yeah. there's is around 80%. Even uh, Holland, their inflation rate is 17%. Mm. You know, the rest of Europe, most of Europe has inflation rates higher than ours, although some have much, much lower. So it, it is, and I, I do, as I say, I put it at the feet of central bankers around the world and useless governments yeah. to, to put us. It's a self-created problem. It really is. And it's funny, isn't mm. it, how we never hear from those on the left about how terrible things are in some other countries in Europe. They always make oh, out yeah. that Britain is the worst country. It's being uh, hit much harder than any other place. I mean, another sort of statistic for you, I suppose. Um, mm. Anyone taking out a new mortgage now faces uh, spending 25% of their household income mm-hmm. on that mortgage. Um, is that particularly significant or, or not really? Well, yeah, I think it is because you know what what it says really about the housing market. Um, 
you know, because I think what we're looking at now certainly is a slowing down of the housing market. Prices are still going up. Um, figures I've seen for September show that their prices are still going up, but not as fast. And I, I suspect that in October we we will see a beginning of, of a reversal. And by November, December, we could see prices actually start to go down because interest rates are so high. Mortgage costs are so high. And plus, the, just the cost of living is so difficult. So a lot of people will be thinking, well, you know, I was going to offer $200,000, now offer $150,000. So sellers are going to have to take lower prices. Although, of course, what then often happens is that sellers pull, pull out of the market. So it, we may not have a complete crash because there may just not be enough supply. But, yeah. you know, there is a potential for a house price crash, which... For if you've got a property is is pretty miserable, but if you're a first time buyer, it's potentially good well. Yeah, for you. I mean we've been moaning for years, Jasmine, about how expensive property yeah. is, and if it goes down a bit, surely that's a good thing. Great to well, talk I to you. So. Thank you very much indeed, Jasmine Bertels, personal finance expert from Money Magpie. I'm all in favour of a property price crash because if you're in a house and you can't sell it, that's not the end of the world. But if you're trying to buy a house and you can't afford one then let the price come down. Let it resettle itself at a much lower and properly uh, interesting rate. And that way, uh, the boom will come. It's as simple as that. Coming up next, we'll be talking to James Chiaverini, restaurateur, of course, owner uh, of Il Portico over in Kensington, one of my favourite Italian restaurants in the world. Apparently, all is not well in Manchester because the wife uh, of um, one of the Manchester City football players, uh, Ilke Gundogan, uh, has dished up a storm, according to the front page of The Sun. It says this, Mank food is manky. And so it is. Manchester, get out of bed. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, here's one from Malcolm who says, Isabel's missing the key point about the boats on Talk TV. It's not just about immigration, it's about our security. We are showing that we are unable to defend our borders against the dark forces. We look extremely weak. Well, listen, I think people have got legitimate concerns about the numbers of people coming to the beaches of this country because, one, we don't know who they are, and, two, we are told by the left that we should welcome everybody, that we don't have to know who they are, we don't need to ask what they've done or where they've come from. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But they must be fleeing some form of... Uh, in fact, we might play this Refugees Council um, uh, video later on because it is full of these virtue-signalling celebrities, including Emma Thompson. And you can imagine, as I say, anything to do with Emma Thompson is always a crock, right? And they're all going, I'm a criminal, you know, trying to make out that, uh, you know, it's the horrible, ghastly, evil Tories who are sort of somehow being nasty to the people coming here, fleeing war zones. Well, it's a very different story in reality, is it not? As I said, though, uh, before the uh, uh, break, uh, City Wag, Mank Food is Manky. Sarah Arfuri, uh, who is uh, from Italy, interestingly enough, says that she's gone up to uh, Manchester because she's with uh, uh, Ilke Gundahan, uh, who plays for Manchester City. Uh, she says the local restaurants are awful. She says she can't find a decent Italian restaurant. Uh, she says all she gets in Manchester is horrible frozen food. She says maybe in London there's some good restaurants, but in Manchester, nothing. So what we thought we would do is talk to an Italian restaurateur, James Chiaverini, a good friend, uh, owner of Il Portico in Kensington. James, what's going on? Manchester is a terrible place for Italian food, apparently. <laughs> apparently so. First I've heard of it, Mike. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know Manchester very well, so I can't tell you whether she's right. Um, but, I mean, is it true? I mean, I've always believed that, I mean, certainly when I lived in Glasgow, there were some great Italian restaurants. Um, yeah. Whenever I've been to most parts of the country, there are great Italian restaurants because the Italian sort of diaspora goes everywhere, doesn't it? It does, it does. We're like rabbits. You open your back door and all of a sudden there's thousands of us. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm being told to ask you to turn your, head, turn your headphones off because we can't hear you very well. So maybe if you do that, uh, we might be able to hear you better. Um, but, yeah, I mean, making Italian food... Um, is an art, I would say. You don't have to be Italian to do it. I mean, I've learned from you uh, how to cook certain dishes that uh, that I come to your restaurant to eat. But, I mean, is there a problem outside of London in this country for, for restaurants? Can you hear me now, Mike? Yeah, that's better. There we go. Here we are. I'm sorry, Mike. Carry on, mate. I'll no, that's you. all right. So tell us, I mean, have you ever thought of opening a restaurant outside of London or is it just in London that you operate? I think no. I mean, to be honest with you, my, my patch is here in West London. This is where I'm very happy. I've never been to have a, um, an Italian restaurant in Manchester, so I don't actually know what the food is like. I'd be amazed in a city of so many million people with such a huge diaspora of immigrants that there isn't a single decent restaurant, especially not the um, the disposable income that, that a professional footballer's wife is. is well, you uh, would think. I mean, she's not averse to posing for the odd picture, and there's a couple of nice pictures of her in the sun this morning. She says this, um, Sorry, I'm sad to be honest, but nothing when she was asked if she has a favourite restaurant in Manchester. I've, tr- I've tried so bad to find a good restaurant, but horrible food everywhere. Can't find a real Italian or good sushi or just fresh food. Everything's frozen. Restaurants here are focused on making money with drinks and shots like nightclubs, not quality food. Is that a, is that a, a problem? <laughs> I guess it depends what the market wants, Mike. But I'd be, like I said, I'd be, I'd be absolutely amazed in the, in the, you know, the country's third largest city that there isn't a single decent restaurant that she can find. I mean, there's a general rule. If there isn't one good place that she can find, maybe the problem lies with her and not with the restaurant scene. Well, maybe her husband needs to take her out to some decent places. I mean, Jose Mourinho yeah. lived in a hotel on the Lowry for, what, about a year or two when he was manager of Manchester United. And I'm sure he must have found a good restaurant in Manchester. 
I would be, I would be amazed. I would be absolutely amazed, Mike. I think this is more. I mean, I, I, I'm surprised that this made the front page news on the Sun. To be quite honest, with you. I think, I think we all just need a break from Liz Truss and the Tories. <laughs> you know, and it's fine. Find us any story. I, I mean, I think it's a great story for the Sun because it does. I mean, it does take your mind off things. Tell us about uh, what you're making of it all so far, because uh, you now are moving more into my area. I saw that you had uh, Jordan Peterson uh, over in the restaurant yeah. the other day, um, and you're talking about doing little podcasts and doing. Uh, little you know sort of video blogs and that kind of thing um how's the business going at the moment yeah it's going okay i mean at the end of the day the um the headwinds that the industry are facing are serious and everybody needs to really pay pay strict attention and work very hard to make it but i think that i think genuinely that the cream will rise to the top and i think the good will out um and i think that you've got to be a little bit canny nowadays and you've got to look at other ways that you can that you can sort of diversify your income as opposed to um, just you know food and beverage right absolutely work. right you know, but i mean in terms of i mean i know you and i've spoken about it before you've got a fixed term uh, fixed rate as it were on your electricity and your and your power and your energy bills and all of that yep. but food and drink must be costing you more money to buy yes as a general yes uh, in, uh, i mean just because my uh, energy my utility bills are fixed it doesn't mean that my suppliers are so if you imagine a catering a wholesale butcher if you imagine his how much it costs him to run all his refrigeration every year must be an absolute fortune. Yeah. So if my uh, butcher doesn't have fixed electric costs, then he's just going to pass it on to me. Right. And what about the uh, the, the sort of the, the staffing situation? Because I know that you've said before that you've struggled to find enough people to employ. Is that getting yeah. any better? Not really, to be honest with you. I think it might well do, I think, in the future. I think uh, I think things are slowly getting back to normal after COVID. But to be honest with you, Mike, we're still, we're still not anywhere near the level that we need to be in order to maximise the... Um, the, the opportunities that we've really got in this country. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, I, I agree the economy is in the doldrums, but you know what? The whole of the world's in the doldrums. Yeah. And I think in one sense, maybe London or Britain certainly is maybe the tallest midget in the room here. You know, <laughs> Quite. There's, yeah. there's, there's still a lot of work that can be done and there's still a lot of opportunity out there, but we need to go out and hustle for it. Yes, I think that's right. And I mean, Liz Truss, for all of her faults, um, is trying her best to push that particular agenda. She's saying, you know, let's pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Let's grow. Let's get the economy growing. Let's spend money. Let's give money back to people so that they have more money in their pockets. I think that's the right thing to do, isn't it? I think that fundamentally, although personally, I'm not a party member, so I couldn't have voted anyway. But, you know, she wouldn't have been my personal choice. But regardless, Anybody that doesn't want her to succeed, I think, is, is doing this country a great disservice. Yeah. Regardless of what you think about uh, her policies, you want her to succeed because if she succeeds, then the great wins. Mm, absolutely. Um, I think we found uh, the picture of Jordan Peterson visiting your restaurant a couple of weeks ago. What did you make of the guy? He's, he's a fascinating guy. Yep, that's him. That's Jonathan Pajra, my friend, Andrew Ndoka. He's a fascinating guy. We had um, He had dinner twice in one day in the restaurant, once before the show and once after. And his um, and he wanted to come in for lunch as well, but he couldn't make it. He was he was a, a extremely polite, extremely intelligent guy. Fixed you with a, with a stare when he spoke to you. Really listened to everything that you had yeah. to say. Took his time to really speak um, candidly and carefully. I thought he was I thought he was an excellent guy. Shook every waiter by the by the hand. Went down to the kitchen. Said thank you to the chef personally. Wow. Really can't fault his manners, gentlemen. It's it's almost it's almost like that when uh, when I come to your place, isn't it? but not quite. It is, yeah. But, <laughs> but he only eats sirloin steak. That's the only thing he eats. Is that right? Fascinating. So are you doing a sort of, uh, are you doing a sort of um, a, a new sort of YouTube project? Is that what you're up to? 
we're looking at something for maybe early next year that will be free speech based yeah. that will be basically involve having the idea that you can bring people together over a restaurant and in a bar and a restaurant setting nice. we can have a discussion about a certain topic and then you can break bread with your neighbor to really get into the nitty-gritty yeah. of it and it'll be a the only cardinal rule will be no phones allowed to stop any so everybody can speak freely yeah. without anybody worrying about some plonker taking a video of them and then right. sticking on there. Nice. And I think that in one sense, I think our, our interconnectivity is one sense a sort of enemy of free speech. People are almost too scared to voice their opinions because they're worried about it being ending up on, on social yeah. media. No, that sounds like a great idea. I must come and join in at some point or other. Listen, I'll see you soon, James. Thank you very much indeed. Good luck with it. James Chiaverini, restaurateur, owner of Il Portico, uh, out there in... Uh, uh, a very intelligent guy, James. He's really got his finger on the pulse and he's got lots of things going on. He's always working out new ways uh, of expanding his business. Talking of free speech, talking of people who don't mind uh, airing their opinions, let's talk to Sean, who's in Durham, who's usually really angry. Hello, Sean, how you doing? Oh, mate, uh, right, <laughs> what do you got for us? You know, you, you, you run about the nurses going yeah. on strike, right? I yes. think they're worth the weight in gold. Do you know that? Well, no, they're so not worth the weight in gold. That's the so point, Sean. every penny, Michael. No, right? they, 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 they should be well paid for doing the job, but they should be doing the job for something other than money, though, shouldn't they? Well, they, they are. They, they are the angels. The no, they're not. The Rubbish. The... No, they're human uh, beings, Michael, Sean. Michael, listen to me now. All right. How many, how many pay rises have the NPs had? Too in many. 12 years? Too many. Seven pay rises? Too many. In seven years? Shocking. Right? So how the hell are they on 84 grand a year and the nurses are scrumping and scraping and going to food banks? Well, they're not all going to food banks. The point is this. A majority, only few of them are, Michael. Yeah, but some of them are. I'm told they are. But the lefties, lefties like you are always talking about food banks. It's all you ever talk about. Michael, man. Michael, you're a Tory. No, I'm not. I've never voted Tory in my life, Sean. You got me completely wrong. No, no, you're not. You're not. You're wrong. It's the Tories that's got the... Hang on. All right. Let me ask you another question, Sean. How much of a pay rise were the nurses given when Tony Blair was in charge of the government? I don't know. I can't remember. You don't know? What? I'll but tell you. I can day, tell I you. None. Than, I thought it was more than Thatcher. No. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Don't go back to Thatcher. That's a loser's. How do you know? Yeah, because How of course I, because I'm paid to know, Sean. Listen, mate. The MPs are on 84 grand a year. They've yeah. had seven peer rises in 12 years. Yeah. You want your ass kicked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You see, you just getting you just getting objectionable now, Sean. I knew he would be angry. He's always angry. Sean's constantly angry. I don't know how he gets through the day, but he's right about the MPs. They're getting too many pay rises. Nurses aren't getting enough. It's that simple. This is Talk TV online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio, and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Coming up in this hour, we're going to be talking uh, about the COVID-19 inquiry. Uh, Philip says this, the media in various forms frightened the UK public when COVID arrived. They put unnecessary pressure on the government, make stories up and exaggerated COVID just to fill TV time and papers. I think it's a bit more complex than that. The issue of what happened uh, all those years ago in March of 2020 uh, took everybody by surprise. I don't think there's any doubt uh, that many of us weren't quite sure where it was all going. Um, We were talking yesterday, actually, just about the uh, memories that we all have of the COVID lockdowns, of exactly what happened, the tears, uh, you know, the uh, going out to eat out, to help out, the whole idea of wearing gloves, the whole idea of uh, using hand sanitizer, the whole idea of wearing masks, the whole idea of only going into supermarkets 
you know, certain numbers at a time, not going into the tube because it was too dangerous to do so, not driving around in uh, uh, buses because it might be too dangerous. Nobody was very sure. But the COVID inquiry has got underway yesterday. Largely, um, it was administrative uh, business that got done but we're going to talk now to Stephen Parkinson senior partner of law firm Kingsley Napoli um, who's written a piece uh, for Politics Home about the Covid inquiry and exactly what we can expect and why perhaps it's not as far-reaching as it ought to be because certainly one of the things that we've learned about the Covid uh, situation is that the government were making decisions based upon an awful lot of modelling uh, by people at places like Sage they were getting advice from all sorts of people who claimed to be you know, doctors, but were perhaps more interested in nudging people to behave in a certain way, more interested in psychology uh, and the psychology of medicine rather than actually medicine itself. We had the whole uh, controversies over the vaccines as well. But let's find out from Stephen uh, what he thinks of it so far and where it is going to go. Stephen, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Um, good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. There's so much to talk about here, really, isn't there? Because, yeah. I mean, I think many of us have waited very patiently for the COVID inquiry to get underway. Some people are not sure that it's going to go uh, into the areas they want it to. Some people are unsure whether people are going to be held accountable. We've already heard from an awful lot of former cabinet ministers in Boris Johnson's government that they didn't really agree with some of the measures put into place, but they couldn't say so at the time because of cabinet responsibility and all of that. Um, so... I guess my first question is, what, what, what do you make of the, uh, of the way that it's been set up and, and where it's going to take us? Well, uh, it's been given a very broad remit. It's going to be looking at the way COVID uh, touched every aspect of, of public life. Mm. Um, but my, my, my major concern is that what some think was the flawed approach of the government seems to have been replicated in the way that this inquiry has been set up. So the inquiry is going to concentrate on the correctness or otherwise of the government's decisions in relation to um, public health. Yeah. But um, but um, one of the issues around um, what the government was doing is they said repeatedly, didn't they, that they were going to follow the science. Yes. The issue is, though, that this was, of course, a public health emergency, but it was also an economic emergency. Um, and... Um, they don't seem to be listening to any experts other than the scientists and the medics. Mm. They weren't getting socioeconomic advice, for instance, about the impacts on the economy. And that's a real problem, I think. Yes, I think it is. Because an awful lot of people will say that they spent vast amounts of money on things like PPE, uh, which turned out uh, that wasn't necessary. Uh, they spent vast amounts of money on ventilators, which it turned out weren't necessary either. Um, I've got some sympathy with, with the government on some of the stuff, because there was a certain an element of, 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 of just ignorance really wasn't there at the beginning nobody really knew for sure I mean I didn't for me personally I didn't go and see my own children for about eight weeks at the beginning because I was working in London and they were living outside of it and and we made a decision that maybe it's best if I don't you know come and contaminate the house you know even though we didn't really know what I would be contaminating it with so so I think for the first part I think people will give them a pass but they certainly kept the, the lockdowns going and the financial damage that we're now seeing coming from that for far too long it seems. I think that's absolutely right. I think most people would, would agree with you that um, the government had, you know, not much information. It had to act swiftly mm. and it had to intervene in quite a draconian way. Yeah. Um, the problem is, uh, and what I hope the inquiry will do, is really scrutinise that decision-making process. Mm. 
because it looks as though there were a small group of people, you've referred to the fact that the cabinet wasn't properly consulted, a small group of people at the centre of government talking to a small group of scientists. Um, and although that might have been the right approach right at the beginning, this is an emergency that went on for two years. But the decision-making process didn't change. Mm. Um, and because of the dominance of the science, it, it meant that all the decisions that were made were inevitably weighted towards um, protecting public health. Obviously, a very important issue. But but some decisions were made which were quite controversial. Do you remember the... Um, the 10 p.m. curfew. Yes. Yeah. And the rule of six and some balmy rules around the rule of six, um, which didn't make a lot of sense to people. So people were, for instance, spinning out onto the streets at 10 o'clock in the evening yes. because they've been chucked out of pubs. Was that a great idea? Um, no, I remember seeing pictures of, of Oxford Circus where everybody had been thrown out of a, of a hostelry at the same time and it was more busy than I'd ever seen it, you know. Oh, absolutely. And then there was this thing about the substantial meal. Yeah. You, know, you, you you could go to a place if you had a substantial meal. Was a scotch egg a substantial meal? Yeah. Um, and that unfortunately benefited um, the more prosperous aspects of the hospitality sector, but it didn't benefit at all um, pubs that only served crisps. You know, I think they they call it the the wet aspect, yes. the dry aspect of the hospitality sector. Um, my, my view is that if they're taken into account a broader range of expertise, if there'd been more d debate, mm. maybe the essential decisions would have remained the same. But I think around the edges, we might have had more sensible decisions, yeah. which well, would have helped to minimise the impact on the economy. Exactly. I mean, I have conversations now with people where we kind of marvel at what we actually did. Um, and how we behaved because it was amazing as an aspect of, of how easily people can be influenced to do certain things you know like even something as simple as standing in a queue to go into a supermarket I mean people just adapted to that I mean I personally hated it and, and stopped doing it and I started shopping in places which were uh, less likely to have a queue but you know a number of times I would go to my local sort of you know supermarket and there'd be literally a queue around the block of people standing one metre away from one another, uh, some of them wearing masks, some of them wearing gloves, and you just thought, this is bonkers, you know? But people were very willing to be able to be sort of cajoled into doing it. People were very compliant and, 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 and very very much behind the government, much to its surprise, I, I think. I think the expectation was that there would be more, yeah. more resistance. But, you know, eight, 800,000 people... Um, um, uh, the number of people in work fell by around 800,000 mm. people in, in 2020. Yeah. And two years after um, the, the, the crisis hit, there were 350,000 fewer people in work in this country. Mm. So the, the effects were devastating on the, the economy. And, and just coming back to the inquiry, I just don't think there's, that they're displaying the level of interest and inquiry around this aspect um, of the impact of COVID that they, they should be. Yeah, because we're told that there's going to be another wave of it coming this winter, and we've already seen there are some um, hospital trusts who are saying we're reinstitu reinstituting the wearing of masks in hospitals for everybody who comes in through the front door. Because um, the main concern, I think, for, for me and for many people is that they don't repeat the mistakes that they made first time around. And a lot of the mistakes that they made first time around were because they were taking advice from the likes of Neil Ferguson and, and other people at Sage. And I mean, I don't know whether you know the answers to this, but are the people from Sage less influential in government now than they were then? 
I, I don't know the answer to it, but I suspect um, the position hasn't hasn't changed. Mm. And, you know, Sage was, in effect, given the power to decide whether the country would lock down or not. Right. And no other perspective was allowed. Rishi Sunak, who was chancellor at the time, um, spoke out recently in an interview. And, and his view was that the whole decision-making process was badly distorted by over-reliance on scientific and medical advice. Mm. He said, I wasn't allowed to talk about the trade-off. Normally, when you have a major public health intervention, there's a cost-benefit analysis. Um, but that didn't happen last time round. Mm. Um, and I think what we need is some economic equivalent of SAGE. So when, when this happens again, and some crisis of this kind will happen again, you do get the expert medical and scientific advice. You need that, of course. But you also get the socio-economic advice, and then they they feed in to those who have to make the decisions. Yes, and where you'll get a better balance um, coming out mm. in terms of the decision making. Yeah, I think so because we now know uh, much more than we did know about the influence of people like Sage, not just in this country but in other countries. There was a report, I think, in Australia uh, where uh, they've now admitted that the sort of nudge unit, if you like, has been much more influential in terms of driving government's proposals and government uh, beliefs because Neil Ferguson himself I think even said at the start we really didn't think we could get away with some of this stuff that China was doing and he was expressed sort of surprise that, that in the end they could have done exactly what China did. Yeah I, I, I think that's absolutely right whether whether they'll be able to get away with that to, to use your words and his words mm. uh, again I, I don't know I mean traveling on the bus to work this morning Covid's going up in London there's only one person wearing a mask. Yeah. Um, I think we've become quite relaxed and maybe a bit complacent. Um, I think people are just fed up with it now. They've got to a point where they've also concluded that generally speaking, and I know this is a very sweeping statement, most of the people who uh, died were people who were not very well to begin with uh, or who were very old. And so most reasonably healthy people under the age of about 60 were not really in any great danger. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's right. I think the other dimension to this, though, is that the government itself lost some credibility mm. because they weren't following the rules um, that they set for others. Right. Uh, and the hemorrhage in public confidence, we mustn't underestimate that, uh, the trust in government. Yes. Um, um, and it's going to be really difficult, I think, to enforce rules of this severity mm. in, in future. Yes. Because People are going to think it's one rule for them. Yeah, and, and I think in many ways that's a good thing because I think the rules that were put in were by and large pointless, most of them. Uh, and we can say that now because we know what happened. We couldn't say it then for sure because we weren't absolutely certain. But certainly, you know, telling people they couldn't go for a walk with each other in an open field with two cups of coffee, uh, otherwise they'd have to be arrested, was just bonkers, wasn't it? It, 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 it was bonkers. Um, it was bonkers. And hopefully one of the lessons that will be learned through this inquiry, is what level of state intervention is needed to safeguard public health. Yes, exactly right. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking again about this, Stephen, so thank you very much for your time, and we'll talk uh, as the COVID inquiry continues and goes on, and when we learn more about what it was that was done, 
why it was done uh, and whether it will ever be done again. Uh, Stephen from the senior uh, partner in the law firm Kingsley Napoli. Uh, we'll have more for you. Uh, keep uh, your calls coming in. We're going to take more of those. We've got the Thursday Club with Helen Nicklin uh, and much else besides. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Big story coming up before uh, we head off to uh, the land of Ian Collins who's coming in uh, just before one o'clock to tell us what's going on and also before Helen Nicklin is here uh, with the Thursday Club. Connor Ben versus Chris Eubank Jr. You'll have heard uh, adverts for it uh, on uh, this very station because it is a massive boxing match. Uh, the British Boxing Board of Control, however, says that the fight is prohibited and not in the interest of boxing because it turns out uh, that young Mr. Ben has failed a voluntary drugs test with traces of female fertility drug clomiphene, uh, which apparently can boost testosterone found in his A sample. We're going to talk now uh, to the man who knows everything there is to know about boxing. Uh, he is the one and only Gareth A. Davis from the Daily Telegraph. Gareth, a very good morning to you. Very good afternoon, I should say. A very good afternoon, Mike. Great to be on your show. I've been on with you in the past. It's yes. nice to be back on with you. It is. Very it is. British boxing. Absolutely right. Now, this is a terrible, terrible situation because here we have two very young men who are very, very big punchers and very dangerous individuals. Um, if there's any trace, surely, of any kind of drug in either of their bloodstreams, it could be that somebody could be very seriously injured or even killed. And we know the history uh, of Eubank and Ben. Uh, we know how things have gone badly wrong in the past. How can this fight go ahead under those circumstances? Well, to address a bit of the meat on the bones there, you're quite right. The two families have been involved in three fights where the boxers have ended up hugely damaged. One, obviously, Michael Watson with Christopher Eubank's father. Um, uh Christopher Eubank Sr., when Michael Watson was was brain damaged in that fight and just survived, Gerald McClellan against Ben Sr., and Nick Blackwell, latterly, in recent times, against Christopher Eubank Jr. Mm. It's a very serious box, uh, business boxing. It's inherently dangerous, Mike, as you know. You've been around a long time, you've been a journalist a long time. You'll have seen things like this in the past. Um, we cannot allow, one, um, is sustain on British boxing mm. if... It's shown that young Conor Ben really has taken uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Two, a fight of this nature cannot go on when one of the boxers has tested positive. Now, there's a hearing going on at the moment with the Boxing Board of Control and the promoters for Ben and Eubank, um, the Wasserman promoters, Calla Sauerland and Eddie Hearn. And I understand that they're with their lawyers and the Boxing Board of Control because they are trying to thrash out whether Conor Ben, because he hasn't been suspended by the Boxing Board of Control, the British Boxing Board of Control, whether he has the um, the right to carry on and take part mm. in the bout because Christopher Eubank Jr. has agreed that he will. The problem boils down to the fact that he tested positive for a body, the Voluntary Anti-Doping Association, which isn't the tester for the British Boxing Board of Control. He's passed the tests with UCAD, who are the testing organisation, mm. UK anti-doping for the Boxing Board of Control. So they're stuck in the middle. They're trying to use a, a loophole. Mm. 
get the fight over the line. My personal view is this fight should not go ahead. Yes. Simple as that. I think so, because I've, right. I've heard you speak very eloquently on many occasions um, about this business of boxing and, and MMA and, and cage fighting and all of that, because it's one of the few sports where people can be seriously injured and even killed. We've seen it, and it doesn't happen. Legally killed, Mike. You know. Legally killed. Legally so we killed. Have to be very careful. Yes. You know? Absolutely right. But the point is this. I'm told, and we don't know this for sure, but I'm told that if you have traces of this particular uh, drug inside you, clomiphone, uh, it tends to be taken after a course perhaps of steroids because it sort of self- it balances up the, the hormones in your body and all of that. Um, I mean, I find it extraordinary that they're even having a conversation about whether it can go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Um, that is the whole point on this. Now, boxing is... is can be a lawless and uh, morally bankrupt sport at times. And obviously, yeah, I can mention greed here because, you know, the, the, the promoters and the fighters never wants to go ahead. I understand that Eubank Jr. and Ben are earning three million plus mm. for this fight. It's an upside on the pay-per-view, which will be enormous on zone. It's one of their biggest pay-per-views. There's the historical element with the fathers having fought in 1990, 1993, and 17 million people in the UK watched those fights. Uh, on ITV. So we, we know there's a resonance with the British public, so it's crossed over into the mainstream. What we've got added to this as well, you've got one guy, Ben, coming up two weight divisions, and Eubank having to drain to a lower weight than he normally fights in because the contractual stipulation. So you, you've got one guy could be pumped up on steroids um, and stronger than he normally be, and another guy weaker than he would normally be, um, who's Eubanks made this campaign the whole time. I can be at 60% to beat you. Look, we, we don't want irony to, to play out in tragedy here. Um, it, as you say, it's an inherently dangerous sport, boxing. All fight sports are inherently dangerous. They that It inhabits a certain place in society. Mm. We need it because it controls society, creates respect factors. But in this scenario, I don't think the promoters should be trying to find a loophole to get it over the line because in legal terms, they may be able to go ahead with the fight, regardless of the amount of money that's been put on the line and has been laid out for this event to happen at the O2 Arena mm. on Saturday night. What they need to do is go back, have the B sample uh, of Conor Ben's B sample tested. Let's see if there's veracity in his claims that he's innocent. And if he isn't the boxing water control, then take action. Yes. Do they suspend him? Do they have the right to suspend him? Any event can be postponed. Well, it's I was going to say, I mean, what would be the harm in saying, look, let's take a rain check. You know, everybody's bought tickets for it, but they can have their tickets validated. It can happen a month from now uh, or even maybe three months from now. But what would be the harm in that? No, no harm at all. We've got it a week after this. Or uh, there's 10 women. There's a 10 women's fight card happening at the O2 Arena on the 15th of October. It was postponed because... Um, it was due to go ahead on the 10th of September. And of course, Queen Elizabeth II passed away on the 8th of September. Yes. So it was postponed. There is no harm in postponing. And in this case, the iniquity of anything going wrong because of a failed drug test in the lead up. What is the point mm. in having a drug testing system, in signing up for voluntary anti-doping association tests? If you come back positive, you have to answer for it. You can't just say, oh, well, that was the voluntary anti-doping. Yeah test it's nothing to do with the boxing border control let's ignore that for now otherwise there's no point in having yeah. any rules but he's also you know? i mean as you've said many times the risk versus reward is too high you know if there's any risk it shouldn't go on 
It's not a question of going, oh, well, there's a 10% risk that somebody could get really badly hurt. That's too much of a risk. It's not tiddlywinks. It's not darts. It's not a kickabout with a football. This is a fight. People have died in the ring. You know, people have brain hemorrhages. People have concussions. There's all sorts of damage. It's an inherently dangerous sport. Mm. It's a gladiatorial, visceral sport that goes way back in our DNA that has a certain place, as I say, in society. 2% of the population are into fight sports, genuinely as fight fans. The mainstream in the mainstream fights it crosses over and there's a bigger interest. Mm. But it needs to be properly regulated and that's why there are drugs tests. You could because you cannot enhance your mm. own weapon, which is you yes. through illegal drugs. No, exactly right. Gareth, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, putting it all in perspective for us. Gareth A. Davis, boxing correspondent from the Telegraph, also to be heard on Talk Sport uh, every weekend as well. Um, it's an extraordinary state of affairs that anyone as a boxing promoter would try to put the money ahead of the health of the people involved in a two-man boxing contest uh, where two men hit each other very, very hard for a very considerable period of time and could cause lasting damage, and particularly with the history of Nigel Ben uh, and his father, Nigel Ben, Connor Ben, uh, and, of course, Chris Eubank Jr. and his father, Chris Eubank Sr. It's extraordinary. The fight must not go ahead. It's as simple as that. This is Talk TV. Coming up, we've got the Thursday Club... Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 